from a healthcare perspective, we oftentimes put people into a very large bucket and things about think about healthcare and how we're going to get sort of this best digital platform or that digital platform and how are we going to get that to these patients. I would almost invert the question to think about before we go too far there, how do we bring everyone that currently isn't even able to access care, how do we bring them into the conversation? Here at Point Health, we are focused on making healthcare easy to find, easy to understand, and easier to afford. As we launched Point Health, we thought, wouldn't it be cool if we shared what we learned during the process of building a digital healthcare company with the rest of the world? So we started this lovely podcast where we get advice from some of the best minds in healthcare and technology about how we can accomplish our vision of making healthcare easy to find, easy to understand, and easier to afford. For today's episode, I am joined by our CEO and founder, Matt Dale. Hi, everybody. Uh, and today we are uh, going to be talking about the provider's perspective and the role they play in helping patients to find and understand their care as we speak with Dr. Bonnie Clipper, Chief Clinical Officer of Wambi. Thanks for joining us today, Bonnie. Oh, thanks for having me. Awesome. So we'll, we'll, we'll start out with a little bio here um, on Bonnie, and then we'll jump into some of the conversation. So uh, Dr. Clipper is an accomplished healthcare executive whose career spans hospital operations, uh, professional association, and health tech startups. She's former chief nurse executive, was the first vice president of innovation at the American Nurses Association, which sounds like a really cool role, and I'm sure we'll hear about that, uh, is an internationally recognized expert in the future of nursing and nursing innovation, uh, Robert Wood Johnson Foundation Executive Nurse Fellow alum, and uh, ASU AONL Executive Fellow and Innovative Health Leadership alum. Dr. Clipper works with health tech companies where she imports the voice of the nurse and patient into the design, development, and workflows to ensure that these solutions meet the true needs and solve the right problems. Um, I also need to mention that she is a lecturer at Baylor University, Louis Harrington School of Nursing, which is my alma mater. So I just had to say that. Sikkim Bears, Bonnie, <laughs> lucky to have you. Uh, I hope it's been a good experience for you. Um, all right. I also also want to say Brian King is here with us as well, our producer, and you may, you may hear from him as well uh, if he feels like jumping in. So maybe to start us off, um, can you just tell our listeners a little bit about your background in healthcare and um, how it has shaped your perspective? Yeah, absolutely. So I have been a nurse for a very long time, probably longer than I want to um, remember. It's been 30 plus years. And certainly a lot has changed in healthcare over that time. And as you guys know, certainly in our world, things continue to accelerate and change even faster. I think we've gone through some different swings at um, different points in healthcare, where even while the patient has always been the center of our universe, there are times in, in sort of our history and how we've operated that I think we've lost sight of that a little bit. So I'm really happy that we really are going back to focusing on patients and their experience and them being the center of the universe. And when I think about patients, I use that term very loosely because that could even be a what we might call a consumer, which is a pre-patient or a post-patient, because all of us at some point in our lives are going to be accessing healthcare. I, I think that's important. And I think sometimes in healthcare, we forget that we're all patients. All, all four of us can be patients, you know, that, that uh, just whether you're a provider or a, a hospital uh, executive, you, you still can, can be a patient in this. Um, one question I, I did want to ask, I, I was doing a little bit of research on Wambi and uh, on yourself and 
on the site, it says, or you're quoted as saying, a leader is not only the people in the C-suite, it's not only the directors and the managers, it's charge nurses, it's supervisors, it's shift leaders, it's everyone calling out the good work that's being done. It's recognizing all that effort. Um, love that. Can you tell us a bit about Wambi and how it supports this, how it, how it does recognize that effort? Yeah, absolutely. At Wambi, we're very, very unique and we really focus on gratitude. So our way to improve the world is by making human interactions actually much more compassionate and empathetic. And part of how we do that is we're incredibly unique. We ask uh, patients and their families to provide real-time feedback to caregivers, healthcare workers, or even any employee that's in a healthcare organization. And that does a couple of things for us. We really believe that it's important to focus on the good and the positive as we share feedback, instead of focusing on the things that didn't go well. And what happens so much in, in healthcare and drawing on my experience as a manager, a director, a chief nurse executive, we find people and share with them the complaints or the feedback or the things that should have gone better. But we don't often, or we don't as much, identify the things that went great and the things that went well. So we actually invert this equation. And we really believe that we are improving the patient experience. We're reducing clinician burnout. And we're improving employee engagement by sharing positive feedback through gratitude. So it's a pretty simple concept. And we're actually seeing some amazing outcomes in our client organizations. When you talk about sharing positive feedback, are you talking about sharing it with employees? Are you talking about sharing it with patients and their families? Or is this something that sort of every stakeholder, this is a philosophy that you're trying to apply to, to everybody involved? So in our platform, it can go both ways. So we really want to empower patients and their families in the patient experience, right? And that's whether it's inpatient, outpatient, no matter where it is along the continuum, just by getting on the platform and sharing experience their experience with um, a nurse, a physician, or a leader, then they can get a better sense of what's going well in that area or what needs to be improved. So if you can imagine, patients actually have the ability, we're, we're pretty much um, device agnostic, right? So you can jump on any platform, your phone, a tablet, your laptop, and share experience with us. And what happens is that actually flows right on through to a dashboard. So an individual nurse or a physician can access their dashboard. They can actually see what patients and families are commenting about them. And it flows to the leader or the person responsible for a particular area, a unit, a department, or several units or departments. And what we find is a couple of things. We find that over 90% of the comments are positive which is always a surprise when we implement in an organization. Oftentimes nurses will say, oh, I don't wanna do this. I don't wanna see it. It's gonna be bad. They're gonna you know, bash me for not being fast enough or for forgetting a pain med or for not answering a call. That's actually not what we see. We see people being very grateful for all of the amazing things that happen all the time during the course of a stay. Uh, and again, whether it's inpatient or outpatient. So it's mostly positive feedback. And you can imagine how good that feels when you're actually a provider um, to see good stuff coming across your dashboard, right? Because you're so afraid it's always going to be bad. And then we also see leaders looking at this information and they can kind of glean, uh, you know, trends, patterns through this data. And they can actually get a sense of what's going right, 
maybe what's going not so right in their departments. They're also able to see trends and patterns among you know, their staff, who's a really high performer from a customer service perspective, who maybe needs some help. But we, what we find is that by starting from the point of gratitude and focusing on, on positivity, people respond in a very different way. And staff are much more enthusiastic about getting the feedback and it makes them feel much better about receiving it. Yeah, and I think that's great. I think lots of organizations, you know, really can, can struggle with uh, bringing attention to where there's a problem and not necessarily bringing attention to all the things that they're doing well. I, Absolutely. I would imagine you guys have some, the, 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 the platform would generate some pretty interesting data as well. Is any of that data utilized when it comes to things like, um, Measurement, uh, you know, obviously outcomes measurement and quality measurement is a big topic we've talked about on the podcast and everyone is, has discussed. And I'm just curious if any of that information is, is uh, able to be kind of implemented to help measure uh, performance or, or, or even things like outcomes for patients or, or tied to outcomes measures to see if there's a correlation there. Yeah, we're just in the process now of making some of those linkages. So we actually just undertook a project where we're looking at HCAPs to really get a sense of how does Wambi fit into that world. And, and certainly each client organization determines the questions that they want to push out on our platform. And some of those questions, there are correlations between what you see in real time through Wambi and what you are likely to see downstream three days to six weeks later in HCAPs. So we're finding that what we're able to harvest in real time can be a predictor of what is likely to come. We're also really starting to dig into how do we truly understand the impact or the outcomes that we're having on a general basis of staff or employees. And by that, we really started to look at how are we impacting things like turnover and retention or how are we impacting clinician burnout? So it's really neat stuff as we start to see this. This it, also is interesting timing because our last podcast, we actually spoke with uh, a guy named Shaquille Haroon, who has a company called Empirica Health, and they're measuring, they're looking at, at Medicare and Medicaid data to, to build out essentially a measurement score. And what we were discussing was in our work, where you know we're trying to build a build essentially a system to help our patients, our members find um, affordable quality care. And, and that word quality is hard. And, and I'm, I guess what I'm wondering and where I'm going is, I'm, I wonder if at, down the road, how the data that you guys are, are pulling and, and, and understanding on, on providers and nurses could be implemented there to help patients. Because when you're a patient and you're trying to pick a facility, it's really hard. Like, what do you go off of? You know, I mean, it, oh, my doctor told me about it. My friend told me about it. My mom told me about it. But having access to some of the stuff that you guys are pulling, actually, I could see that being really powerful for, for patients as well. Yeah, I think there's a whole lot of potential, you know, in the data and certainly in what we're learning about organizations as well, particularly as a society, we begin to lean more heavily into patients um, curating and creating their own experience now, we know that there are some limitations to things like that, right? So while you might be able to pick your provider, do you want to see a, a physician, a nurse practitioner, a, a PA, and who might you want to see where they're located, what their training is? So generally speaking, for many of us, as long as they're under our insurance plan or we can pay for them out of pocket, we have the ability to make many of those decisions. 
However, it's more limiting once you actually enter into a hospital. You don't get to pick your nurse. You don't get to pick your therapist. You don't get to pick your CNA. So we really need to think about how do we come up in a very robust sort of wraparound way with identifying some of those characteristics that are really part of the patient experience that maybe are a little bit deeper than some of those HCAPS related metrics at present time. I, I like how you hit on um, patients being active in their care and, and, and some of that choice. And those are things we've talked about. I think I'd, I'd love to shift a little bit and ask you as a provider, uh, you know, someone who has spent quite a bit of time with patients, what, what do you see as the role of, of the provider in encouraging patients to be active in their care? And, and I think that's multiple, um, there's most, multiple pieces of that, right? That's, that's choosing their care and their decision-making um, in, in encouraging them to be engaged in their health, but also in their consumption decisions, because this is a, it's a pretty expensive choice, right? So they're having to weigh a lot of factors. And so I'm just curious from your perspective and, and, and your experience as a provider, how, how have you seen that play out? And just to be clear, I myself am not a provider. However, as a chief nursing officer, as a chief nurse executive, my facilities, my organizations are where patients have uh, come for their care. So when, when I think about that, you know, again, we've really leaned a whole lot into the patient experience, um, particularly, you know, how we can actually shore that up and help convey data back and forth that creates meaning for leaders and for individuals to improve how they communicate, how they message, how they serve others. So I think data is going to continually be an important role there. There is such a disconnect though, right? When we think about this, from a healthcare perspective, we oftentimes put people into a very large bucket and things about think about healthcare and how we're going to get sort of this best digital platform or that digital platform and how are we going to get that to these patients? I would almost invert the question to think about before we go too far there, how do we bring everyone that currently isn't even able to access care, how do we bring them into the conversation? You know, from a, when I put my nursing hat on, my biggest concern, um, yes, it's around quality. However, it's really about bringing millions and millions of people into the same um, expectation of a healthy life. And health and wellness is a platform to, to sort of springboard off for the rest of your life. How do we do that? So that's the bigger issue for me to think about tackling. Why has it been been so hard? Because it's, you know, on one level, it's just so clear that, you know, everything sort of starts with, with health and wellness and being engaged in your health before you need to enter the medical system. Why do you think that that's not been necessarily clear to everybody? Well, I, Matt, I would say that's a misnomer, right? We're very privileged. We all probably have insurance. So in our worlds, we have always just had that next as an expectation. You're either employed and you have insurance or you buy it. However, there are really millions of people um, that don't have that and have never had it. So, you know, I, I'm on a couple of different nursing groups and, and we struggle a whole lot with how do you even get to the point in our country that healthcare is a right and not a privilege and we're not even there. So that's the first place to start and then continually tweaking and improving upon quality and outcomes for everyone. But I, but I think there is a gap. And I, I think at some point, the only way to solve that, since we can't throw money at it, the only way to solve it is going to be around technology and digital solutions. 
Yeah, that, that makes a ton of sense. It's interesting hearing you talk about healthcare as, as a human right. That's actually one of the things that at Point in Health we've really had as, as one of our mission statements is that, you know, we believe, believe healthcare should be a human right. We believe it should be something that, you know, everybody has access to. Um, one of the things that you were talking about earlier is you were talking about uh, patients and you were talking about the patient journey. And I'm, I'm interested for, for people that listen to the podcast that are on the provider side of things, are there some things that you've identified that are sort of the low hanging fruit that providers can do where it's a, a relatively easy lift for a big return to really improve the patient journey? Yeah, I, I think the number one thing that comes to mind to me, it's a little cliche and we'll all roll our eyes at it. We've said for the last five to 10 years that we don't want you to fill out the same form multiple times, yet we continue to fill out the same form multiple times. Why, when I, I just changed insurance again through open enrollment, had to go out and fill out everything online again for this new company who has a different telehealth provider. And then I had to fill out all their forms online for myself and my kids. And every year, every time you change insurance, you have to do that. The data, the information is mine. It's, it's Bonnie Clippers. It's not the company. So why can't I take my data and share it with whom I'd like? So I think that continues to be just the stickiest, stupid issue that we have to fix and find a way to move past that, then let's talk about some of the real outcomes. How do you think an issue like that can be fixed? Who, who would need to be in, involved in putting a solution in place? I don't know, you guys seem pretty smart to me, but uh, you know, I think it's really gonna be a matter of, um, this isn't impossible. It feels like if we wanted to solve this, we could solve it in two weeks. Right. There's only a handful of big uh, EHRs and probably a couple dozen small EHRs. It, why can't we make this happen? It, it, it just feels to me as though it's one of the things that people truly don't want solved. It, that's so I'll, I'm going to I'm going to share a quote that I've shared before and people who've listened to more than one podcast episode, which probably isn't that many, but who have will will we'll recognize it. I was listening to a, a podcast recently and uh, there was a quote that was used by Stephen Glasgow, who's, who's president and CEO of Thomas Jefferson University and Jefferson Health. And he shared this Upton Sinclair quote in relation to healthcare, And it was it is difficult to get a man to understand something when his salary depends on his not understanding it. And, and that hit me somewhat hard and maybe to what you said like a lot of these problems could be fixed if people were willing to do it have you seen that in healthcare i mean maybe i'm being cynical but i i've certainly seen that i'm just curious if that strikes a nerve with you like it did with me well i you know i i think that we've probably seen that in every industry right so we need to make sure that the incentives are aligned with the goals or the outcomes and, um, you know, we even see this as we talk about uh, kind of the automation of, of, of work, right? And, and regardless of what industry you're in, there are people who are not going to be in some jobs in the future because they will have been replaced with a digital solution. Now, that does not mean there won't be another job for them to move into, but we have to figure out a way how to make it everyone's best interest to still improve and automate and make some of these solutions happen. What, what are your predictions for, for what that looks like over 2021? What do you think is gonna happen in, in healthcare over the next year? <laughs> 
Well, I think we first got to climb out of this pandemic hole, right? We got to get ourselves sort of uh, situated. The other thing, at least what uh, the conversation that I'm having with my um, nurse executive colleagues and physician colleagues around the country is that we really do need to make a reinvestment on science and evidence driving so many of our practices, no matter the industry, right? For some reason, we've lost our footing there and we've, we've taken that for granted. So I think that there's gonna have to be a reinvestment and a whole lot of communication and um, messaging work around the importance of that. Um, so I think that there are some opportunities to do some of those basic things. The other thing that we really have to think about in, in healthcare, and again, this is just my opinion, but the other thing that we have to think about is how can work, work look different for some of these areas that we have shortages in, right? I've been a nurse for well over 30 years. For 30 years, we have had a nursing shortage. It's now being exacerbated. Now, the good news is that nursing schools tend to be seeing a, a spike up in applications because there are, this has been a rallying cry for people that really do want to get involved and are excited by this and been re-energized yet on the back end of this pipeline we actually have uh, chief nursing officers we have nurses that are saying i'm a, i'm about two or three years from retirement but this ride has been too much for me i'm out right so i think when when we begin to look at what does the future of work look like from a nursing and a patient care perspective um in my opinion we we would be silly not to incorporate the AI and the machine learning and even the robotics and things that are available to us where it's smart and where it's safe and where it makes sense, knowing that that will change the way that we provide care. It will change some of the models of care and it is highly likely to eliminate some jobs because we have to create other jobs in other capacities instead. So if you think back, you guys know healthcare pretty well. <clears throat> If you think back about, um, you know, 10 years ago, we had these people called transcriptionists. When uh, a patient would have surgery or have a procedure, somebody would pick up the phone, you know, dictate a note. And basically that note was somewhere typed in a back room by people that were on typewriters, eventually word processors. The ladies with the clipboards and the little rubber things on their thumb would come around, flip through them, pull them out, pop them in a chart. Eventually that went to, I dictate a note. It actually just magically through voice recognition is um, spit out and electronically it's in a patient record. So transcriptionists are no longer around, right? They've lost those jobs. Yet people that had that skill set are now doing other things. So I see the same thing is going to happen around some of these uh, positions like monitor techs. A monitor technician sits in front of a bank of monitors 24-7 watching for, you know, arrhythmias, aberrancies, anomalies, and, and then picks up the phone and calls a nurse that says, hey, I'm seeing this, check your patient. That can all be done through AI even up to predicting the anomalies that are going to happen or predict patients that are going to be preceptic before they're septic. So we absolutely can improve outcomes. It means that we're gonna lose some of those jobs. Now, can we do other things with those people? You betcha. Let's upskill them, let's train them to be nurses because the same wave is gonna work its way through nursing. You know, There's going to be a point in time and I assure you people will throw darts at this, but there will be a point in time that the way we staff hospitals looks different 
because every patient will be connected to a variety of different monitors and data collection devices through Bluetooth that will allow the fewer nurses in the units to make better decisions to then deploy their support personnel that could potentially be a pharmacist or a therapist or an LVN or uh, you know a med tech instead of all nurses. So I think those models are coming. There are some organizations that are really working on that, but that's not the fun stuff to talk about. So quite often we don't. So I, a couple of things. Uh, I, you struck a chord there when you were talking about uh, the, the change. My, my dad's a dentist and I still remember walking into his giant file room where they had a file for every, I think they might still have some of those, but they have boxes and boxes of those things. And it's just, it's funny to think back to how we've changed. They even used to have a, a handwritten appointment book. If I remember back in the old days, literally they'd write in the, the appointments, whereas now everything's run on uh, on the cloud. So it, really we've gone through a big change. I, I'd love to uh, just just maybe shift a little bit. Um, I mentioned in the intro that you were the vice president of innovation at the American Nurses Association. And then I also, I think, noted that you, you'd written a book on nursing innovation. Both sound really cool to me. Um, I would love to maybe just hear a little bit. What, it sounds like a fun role. What was that like? What what were you able to do? And, and maybe what did you learn from that experience? Yeah, that was an absolutely amazing experience. And through that, I crafted the innovation framework for the ANA, which really allowed us to bring 4 million registered nurses into the innovation space, right? If you think about it, nurses are natural innovators, but we don't teach them about innovation. We don't call them innovators. Instead, we just do workarounds, right? We MacGyver, we do what it takes to care for our patients. We need to call that out as innovation because that's what it is. And they, in fact, are innovators. They're closest to the patient. They spend more time with patients in any other discipline. And they're natural problem solvers. They're critical thinkers. They understand the family dynamics. They're bridge builders, they're translators. So we do all of these things, yet we don't really thrust them into the spotlight of being innovators. And oftentimes when nurses have these really amazing ideas or solutions, we give them, you know, the million reasons why we can't. Too expensive. We tried that. This department won't do that. This person won't do that. It's not in their job description. The policy says otherwise. We throw literally every roadblock in front of them that we can. So my experience at the ANA really allowed me to help educate nurses on innovation give them some hands-on experiences. I actually facilitated the largest nurse hackathon ever, 850 nurses back in 2018. So it started to um, help bring nurses into that space. Now I actually have, uh, you know, there's kind of a, a small army of nurse innovators around the country that continue to bring nurses into this space. And as a result, not because of me, but as a movement, nurses are incredibly bright, bright people that are very resourceful. There are nurses that have multi-million dollar companies, some that have actually exited rather successfully, but we're seeing all kinds of amazing things pop up as a result of that. You know, even the work that you guys are doing, lots of opportunity as we talk about improving the patient experience, you know, it's, it's, it can't just be about look and feel. It's really got to allow them to have more control about what happens. And, you know, I, in, you know, you can tell I have some strong opinions, but one of them is insurance shouldn't be driving the patient experience, right? And they are, which is partially why we have to decouple insurance from employment, because people are too afraid, you know, if you have a job, you can't mess that up because it changes your insurance. Just like for me, I have no control over my insurance. It's 
part of my job, right? So the good experience I had with the company last year is gone. And now here I am rebuilding all new provider relationships again, because the other ones aren't part of the new insurance. So until patients control that, it, it's a game. It's a joke. It's whack-a-mole. Man, you would have, I'm laughing and Brian probably is too. We had that exact conversation at the round table today. It was, it was brought up by multiple people and, and Clay Johnston and others. And we talked about like, why is that still the case? Why is it still tied to employment? And, and, and what if it wasn't? It was a really because good- here's why it's, t- it's, here's why that's the case. Um, aside from the last couple of years, right, of polarization conversations, um, insurance has been tethered to healthcare predominantly since what, 1936 or 1937. So it, it got tethered back then. And now it has become, the well has become poisoned to the point that untethering them gives you, you're, you're a label, you're a socialist, you're a liberal, you're something when actually, um, I think it's probably going to have better outcomes and it might even be cheaper. I don't know. I'm not an economist, but it might even be cheaper if it was untethered because think about all the things that have to be redone for people every time they change providers. So if these things, if, if insurance was, was completely decoupled from who your employer was, you probably wouldn't have to repeat certain blood work that was part of your last physician last year because it would all be accessible. Now, I know you can fill out the forms and the online this and the online that, which we all do, but I, get, I assure you, I mean, I've repeated a ton of things for myself or my kids that people just ask to be repeated and they have access to everything they supposedly wanted. So I think it would be cheaper. Yeah, no, I agree. We, we Honestly, everyone on the, on the conversation came to the same conclusion that you just said like so then the question is how do we change it yeah and, and that was a little bit like clay johnson was the one who he, he kind of gave a few of the positives he talked about um like aggregating power like if, if people didn't have if there wasn't the ability to like group and there was some purchasing power there you know he called it a couple of positives but overall we all we all agreed um we and there and there wasn't necessarily like a clear answer in the end like i don't know if you saw it one of our our, our uh, general counsel just sent over a note and it was about Amazon and how they're, they're not just building their insurance for their own employees. They're building it to sell to others. Like, yeah, absolutely. That's what Haven was started for. So it wasn't just to sell and take care of their own individual employees. Cause that number was actually not very big. I think it's probably less than 25, 30, whatever, hundred thousand employees. That's not very big, but it really was the ability to sell it to others. So yeah, that's, what's going to happen. Won't be long before we see it pop up on our Prime accounts, you know, purchase your healthcare here. So, and you know what? I'm real torn about that, but I'll tell you what that control center mindset does is how many times do you start any search on Amazon, right? There's, they are part of the evil empire. So we have to figure out how to make them not so evil feeling. Yet anything I want to search for ever, I start on Amazon. And whether it's a, a book, a magazine, a TV thing, something I'm going to watch, something I want to buy, I start there. And they know that, right? They bought pill pack. That's now part of their Amazon medications. I actually ordered um, uh, naproxen online. I I always order generics. So I was on um, Prime and there are labels now with Amazon medicines. So in my cabinet, I actually have Amazon 
medicine of naproxen. So they've moved into the generic market. So it's coming. And I, I think they're brilliant for doing it. Yeah, they're, they're, well, and it's they're, they're following the same model that they've applied to other parts of retail, right? Which is end-to-end control of the supply chain from the, the factory that makes it to the truck that drops it off at your door. So interesting they're doing that in medicine as well. Well, they're hiring nurse practitioners. They actually had a chief nursing officer and they're hiring nurse practitioners. So they're doing something. Can't blame them. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> why not go to Amazon Telehealth? On the money there, I, they will. I mean, there's no question they will, and they'll buy up all these other pieces and they'll put them together. Which is really what needs to happen. That whole market. I mean, there's a couple hundred, you know, small providers. It needs to consolidate over the next two to three years. So there will probably be a dozen or so big ones. I'm not saying that's the right model, but there can't. There's not room for everybody anymore. So if I'm Prime member, I get free insurance. Is that what we're going to? <laughs> well, no. But if you're if you're a Prime member and they're tracking you on your Apple Watch, maybe you get a rebate into your Prime account and you can use it on anything you want. Prime grocery, Prime books, Prime you know, fishing gear, Prime whatever. And that would be pretty awesome, right? Yeah. Well, um, we really appreciate it. And uh, thank you for your time and thanks for joining us. And we uh, hope you have a great rest of your day. Thank you. It's my pleasure. Bonnie. All right. Thanks, Bonnie. Appreciate it. That brings our episode to a close. Thanks to Bonnie for joining us and sharing her expertise on the role nurses can and should play in healthcare innovation, how we can better recognize and reward the good work being done by healthcare workers, and why health insurance shouldn't be tethered to employment anymore. We hope you enjoyed our conversation and learned a thing or two from Bonnie. Keep an ear out for our next episode as we dive into the role technology can play in helping patients find affordable, quality care in the moment they need it most. Be sure to subscribe now so you get a heads up when future episodes drop. Thanks for listening.